is she? Shana, the Jungle Queen. Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, and I'd like to welcome you to Kazarcast, a podcast devoted to Kevin Plunder, the Lord of the Savage Land. This week I'll be talking about... No. Just kidding. This is Shanna Showcase, my podcast devoted to Shanna the She-Devil. I would never devote a podcast to Kazar, everyone's favorite jungle lord. Well, everyone's favorite except mine. Can't stand the character, but because of Kazar's close association with Shanna, I'm occasionally forced to bite the bullet and talk about the guy. This episode of Shanna Showcase, I'm going to be recapping and commenting on stories from two issues of Savage Tales, a bi-monthly book published by Marvel Comics in the mid-70s. This was a magazine format book, so larger than a standard comic and was published in black and white. The title started off featuring another He-Man type figure that I don't really give a damn about, Conan the Barbarian, but with issue number six... It began starring Kazar. I'm thinking it was probably around this time that Conan got spun off into his own black and white magazine titled The Savage Sword of Conan. Now at this time, Kazar had his own standard comic title, the first two issues of which I covered in the previous episode of Shanna Showcase. And I just I find it amazing that Kazar was actually supporting two titles at this time. The reason I'll be talking about Savage Tales, and as a result, Kazar is that the lead story in issue number eight, cover dated January 1975, features Kazar's second meeting with Dr. Shanna O'Hara, the she veterinarian. The story is told in two chapters, the first of which is called The Billion Year War, and it's written by Jerry Conway, with art by the amazing team of John Buscema and Tony DeZuniga. Now I've got tons of uh, Tony DeZuniga art in my collection, mostly filed under J, because he did so much work on Jonah Hex. He was in a way the perfect artist for that book because every issue of that title was at least solid. Some were spectacular, but I've never read a dud issue of Jonah Hex. That's the way I feel about DeZuniga's art. He'd only occasionally like knock me out. Uh, and we'll be talking about one of those instances in the next channel showcase. But he was a rock-solid artist and could always be counted on for work that was at least very good. Very good to excellent. And John Buscema's work was always stand out to me. Now, I know for a fact I was introduced to Buscema's work in How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way, the handbook to illustration he did with Stan Lee. My elementary school library had a copy of that, and I would constantly check it out. And I would continually renew it. It was, like, never on the shelf. Uh, I learned so much from that book, especially in the chapters about perspective. My favorite pages from the book were about, uh, I think it was, like, dynamism in panel layout. And they used a sample from some comic I hadn't seen before, and... It bugged me for years that I couldn't figure out where it came from. It was a scene with Nick Fury, Captain America, and Captain Britain taking on the Red Skull. Now, I knew Captain America, Nick Fury, and Red Skull from somewhere. Probably Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And somewhere along the way, I found out that the other guy with the staff was Captain Britain, but I could never track down where the heck that page was taken from. 
you know, it was a mystery that I just solved like last year when I was able to get a good deal at a store called Newberry Comics on the hardcover Captain Britain collections. He's collected uh, his stories, the entire run uh, of his Marvel UK series from the 70s. And that whole Red Skull story is reprinted in one of those. And I have to say I haven't read them yet, <laughs> but definitely have to move them to the top of the reading pile. And all this Captain Britain talk is putting kind of a bug in my brain to do something with Cap, either in podcast form or on the blog. i got to think about this. Anyway, I, I love John Buscema's work. Of all the classic Marvel artists like Jack Kirby, who you can't deny his influence in imagination, and Steve Ditko, Don Heck, John Romita is definitely my favorite, but I think Buscema might be the best of the lot. He's got all the dynamism of Kirby, but with a refinement that you don't really find much with that bunch. And together with Dezuniga on this story, it's just, it's beautiful. Maybe the best artwork so far on a Shanna story. Now, we can't call it a Shanna story right away, because it opens up with Kazar skulking around the jungle of the Savage Land, that hidden paradise in the middle of Antarctica where Kazar's from. He's spying on a tribe of natives called the Hill Forest People, along with his companion Zabu, the saber-toothed tiger. They're observing a group of hill people dancing in worship, it looks like, around some tall metal device that looks... Well, I don't want to say what it looks like. No. Maybe it's just my dirty mind, but... I'm of the opinion that Jerry Conway was telling two stories here. The one on the surface about some science fiction clash between civilizations, and one buried a little bit in the subtext maybe about the basic human attraction between people, but more on this a little bit later. Kazar and Zabu are caught napping by a hill person sentry who obviously has a problem with peeping Tom and peeping Tomcat. An altercation follows, leaving Kazar wounded, but the sentry dead. Feeling guilty, Kazar vows never again to involve himself in the affairs of the hill people. Story cuts to faraway Denmark, where a young man is blinded by some subterranean menace, which begins burrowing, I think Bugs Bunny in those old Warner Brother cartoons, begins burrowing southward, we're told, toward Antarctica. Back in Savazan, Kazar and Zabu attack a ten-foot Godzilla, kill it, and cook it for supper. I think they could probably eat for a week on that thing, but as they take their sup, a native runs up, explaining in his own language that a ship has turned up in the underground river somewhere that Kazar is familiar with. And Kazar, compulsively enforcing a strict no-visitor policy to the Savage Land, rushes to investigate. Forcing his way aboard the ship, Kazar discovers that the, it's here on a mission for S.H.I.E.L.D., the international espionage organization. And leading this mission is Kazar's former love interest, Bobby Morse. What a coincidence. Also on this mission is Shanna O'Hara. And from the outset, we see that the two ladies, they, they don't really get along. Bobby Morse explains their presence to Kazar. S.H.I.E.L.D. has been tracking an underground disturbance, which is making its way to Antarctica. 
Shield has picked up similar vibrations coming from the Savage Land, and almost certainly from the device now being worshipped by the Hill People. Shield fears that when the vibrational sensation from the nether regions of Antarctica, from emanating from this strangely anatomically shaped capsule, meet up with the burrowing menace from the top, or head of the world, that geological catastrophe will ensue, you know, earthquakes, volcanoes, etc. The idea is for Bobby Morris to attach some device that S.H.I.E.L.D. has devised, which they hope will magnetically disable the Hill People's love capsule. I mean, metal ramrod thing. I, I mean, I mean the thing. I'm not making this up. Dang. You'll see pictures of this thing on the blog. And here's where I'm wondering if Jerry Conway is using the story as some kind of metaphor for the burgeoning and inevitable relationship between Shanna and Kazar. It had already been established at the time they met, the attraction between the two. Well, here's Kazar's old flame turning up in Antarctica with Shanna in tow, ready to shut down basically the blank block, an operation to connect two hot-blooded burrowing devices. It's obvious that Bobby resents Shanna's presence, and it's explained that Shanna is along only as a failsafe, someone with some jungle experience should Kazar blow off the mission. Now, it could totally be me and my mind in the gutter, but I think Conway may be telling us something here about the communication between the head and the... the heart, we'll say. Kazar himself behaves very coolly with Shanna, but going back on his word not to get involved, agrees to accompany the mission. So Kazar sets out with Shanna, Bobby, and a couple of what I'll call Red Shirt Shield agents to deactivate this device. And they're immediately attacked by a giant anaconda. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Following a text page which highlights stories in upcoming issues were promised a Shanna solo story written by Steve Gerber, but I'll tell you right now, that's not true. That story would eventually be come out, but not for a while. Following the text page, we jump right into chapter two of the story called The War That Time Forgot, which, as a fan of DC War Stories, caused my heart to jump a little bit. Chapter two opens with the snake attack. The giant serpent kills two red shirts before Kazar can leap into action. And he does so, but gets himself all wrapped up. This causes Bobby to reach for a rifle, but Shanna leaps in, having shed all of her clothes, apart from the famous leopard-skin bikini, saying she'll take care of this her way. An animal expert and animal lover at heart, Shanna attempts to use the butt of her knife to knock the snake out, but the snake shrugs off her attack, and in doing so, it loosens its grip on Kazar, who sticks it with a knife and runs the blade down its body, killing it. The scene, I should point out, is kind of depicted on the cover, painted by Steve Fabian, who, according to Comic Book DB, didn't, didn't do much comics work. I say kind of, because it's the sort of illustration that makes me think of Kazar unfavorably, especially in his, his relationship to Shanna. The cover shows Kazar rushing to Shanna's aid as she wrestles with a giant snake. Well, that's not really how it went down in this issue. In fact, it was... Almost the opposite, though Kazar does land the killing blow. 
It's just a little frustrating to see Shanna reduced to a damsel in distress, despite the fact that she's taken on alligators and giant bulls and eight men with, with relative ease, but someone buying this magazine's off the stand might think she, she couldn't hold her own against this reptile. Anyway, it's Kazar's book, and it's his killing of the snake that causes Shanna to sarcastically deride him, asking if it made him feel more like a man. And Kazar can't hide the fact that he gets a kick out of her reaction, and this exchange is witnessed silently by Bobby. And don't worry, Bobby, you'll find your Prince Charming someday. That'll, of course, be Hawkeye of, of Avengers fame. So they bury their dead, poor red shirts, and press on toward the village of Lothar and the hill people. When they get there, what I find surprising is that Khazar, who speaks their language, doesn't attempt to explain the dangerous situation or engage them in any other way but to lead an all-out attack on the group, which is still worshipping this tall device which Khazar figured out was accidentally dug up during the plowing of their fields. So Kazar, Zabu, Shanna, and Bobby, they tear into the villagers. Bobby even manages to attach her blocking device to the totem, but eventually the group is overwhelmed by a sheer number of hill people. Now, I know these black and white mags weren't approved by the comics code, and or maybe aimed at a slightly older audience, but Conway and company aren't even trying to hide what comes next, because just then, the large shaft begins to hiss and hum. Now, this is after Bobby Morse touches it with her device. And finally, it works itself in, into such a fit that it bursts, expelling its load. Only its load is an alien calling itself Grand. And Grand looks a little bit like the Superman villain the Parasite did back in the 90s, a kind of hulking blob. Or maybe a little bit like the Batman villain Clayface, but a bit more cut. Now, Gran seems to recognize Kazar and moves in to attack him, communicating telepathically that their clash will end, quote-unquote, the war. Kazar, suddenly protective of the hill people that he just attacked, tells them to scatter. So Gran and Kazar go, go to each other for a couple of pages. Gran is going on and on about... How they've slept for a billion years, but now their fight is... But now they fight for their masters, and Kazar, countering with probably the most insightful things he's ever said, about being no one's slave and arguing for free will. They go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, but Kazar finally manages to maneuver the creature into a bit of quicksand, which slowly engulfs the creature, eventually consuming it whole. Kazar turns to find himself now being worshipped by the hill people, but that doesn't impress him much, and he just takes his leave. As do Shanna and Bobby Morse, who, back aboard the S.H.I.E.L.D. ship, open up the now inert other device, which had been burrowing its way, and when Grand was defeated, it just sort of deactivated. And when they open it up, they find a deceased warrior who is an exact double for Kazar, explaining why Gran seemed to recognize him. The two women comment on the futility of this warrior's death, the futility of everyone's death, really, and as the ship departs, 
Shanna looks back toward the savage land, envying Kazar's freedom, his lack of need of civilization. I think she might be developing a thing for him. So, a weird story. Absolutely gorgeous to look at. Uh, maybe I'm reading too much into the sexual subtext laid out by Jerry Conway, but it seems a little, a little obvious to me. Crazy, crazy stuff. A uh, sword and sorcery type tale of Brack the Barbarian by Doug Munch and Steve Gann follows the story in the issue. And you get a text history of Khazar and the Pulps and a Jan of the Jungle reprint. Jan was a prototype of sorts to Shannon, had her own title in the 1950s. So quite a bit of material in this book, a real bargain back then at 75 cents. This run of Savage Tales has never been collected to my knowledge, but I recommend picking them up. These are the issues I'll be talking about here if you, if you ever see them. The Busima de Zuniga art alone is worth the few bucks you spend, I, I promise. In Savage Tales number 9, cover dated March 1975, behind a 40-page a Khazar shocker, and behind a pretty gorgeous cover painted by Michael Kaluta, there's a Shanna solo story called The Golden Blood Beasts of Dakajur. This was written by Carla Conway with a, an assist from Jerry, and the art is credited to The Tribe. Not many credits listed for The Tribe on ComicBookDB, which is a shame because the art is excellent. The Tribe seems to specialize in beautiful women, and the jungle cats are quite good, so a Shanna story seems like a, a perfect fit for The Tribe. I wouldn't be shocked to find out that uh, The Tribe had done some work for Playboy or something. Anyway, the story begins right in the middle of the action. Shanna, in India, for an as yet unexplained reason, is being attacked across a double-page spread by a stampeding animated elephant statue under the command of Raga Shah, High Priest of Dakajur. Just as Shanna's leopard companions, Ina and Biri, who we haven't seen for a while, they're writhing around on the ground, in pain, it looks like. To protect her friends from the elephant hooves, Shanna leaps up around the elephant's head and puts out one of its stone or jeweled eyes with her knife. This sends the elephant into a rage, and Shanna has to hang on for dear life. And as it charges, the elephant passes by a tree, and Shanna knocks her head on a low-lying branch, and the bump sends her into a flashback. A flashback to days before on her home turf, the Dahomey Reserve in Africa. Shanna and the Pussycats happen upon a gang of thugs, thugs here in the definitive sense, a group of Indian assassins, who are attacking what Shanna thinks is a safari group. Shanna, Ina, and Biri force most of the thugs into a patch of quicksand, as handy here as it was to Kazar in the last story. And Shanna incapacitates the last assassin with a sock to the jaw. She checks the ten of the victims and finds a lone survivor, and happens to be her friend and shield agent, Chakuna Singh. Singh is badly wounded, but won't listen to reason and let Shanna take him to the hospital. He claims to be marked for death by the Hindu goddess Kali, but on the run from someone named Raga Shah. 
All is not lost, says Singh. He wants Shanna to carry on for him to travel to Calcutta, India, seek out his sister, Sarafa, who will explain everything. Suddenly, something outside the tent gets the attention of Ina and Biri. Singh fears it's the blood beast, and sure enough, emerging from the jungle is a giant animated golden bull statue. Shanna, confident in her ability to take on giant bulls, she had some experience in issue number three of her old series. This was covered several episodes back. Charges the beast, but she's pretty easily knocked aside. The bull charges Singh and gores him, killing Shanna's last remaining human friend. In anger, Shanna confronts the last remaining thug, but before she can get anything out of him, some supernatural power causes him to kind of explode from the inside. The next day, Shanna makes her way to India and drops in on the residence of Sarafa Singh. The woman that greets her turns out to be an imposter who attacks. Shanna gets the upper hand, and the imposter's punishment for failing to kill Shanna is the same immolation suffered by the thug in Africa. This wasn't before, though. The imposter spilled the beans, saying Sarafa was being held prisoner by Raga Shah at the temple of Dakajur. Shanna hires a boat to take her there, but she's again betrayed by the ship's crew, who knock her out from behind. She awakes in her intended destination. However, she's imprisoned, but not bound, along with Sarafa in the temple. Sarafa relates her tale. She was in love with Raga Shah. They were to be married until she learned of his plan to destroy the world. The destruction of the world would have been a a huge sacrifice to the goddess Kali that he worships. Sarafa's story is interrupted by the appearance of Raga Shah himself, who shows off a giant statue of Kali surrounded by a moat filled with the blood of his victims. Shanna seizes the opportunity to quickly release Ina and Biri, who had been caged, and all three escape outside. It's there that Shanna learns the secret of the giant animated statues as Ragasha draws the life force from Ina and Biri and feeds it into the large golden elephant, which attacks, bringing us full circle to the beginning of the story. Shanna manages to pry free the elephant's remaining eye stone, completely blinding the beast, though she's able to somehow steer it towards the temple entrance, causing it to collide with and completely destroy the giant statue of Kali. As often happens with these temple scene climaxes, a, a fire breaks out, which prevents Shanna from rescuing Sarafa and capturing Raga Shah. It's interesting, during the scene, we're reminded that Shanna is not adverse to killing, as she's quite clearly seen stabbing a, a red-shirt thug. Raga Shah shouts threats of revenge through the flames, but Shanna's dealt a cruel enough blow as she rushes to Ian and Biri and finds that they're dead as a result of the elephant's destruction while in possession of their life force. And it's on this total downer that the story ends. Shanna will continue her search for Raga Shah in the next issue of Savage Tales, where which I'll cover next time out. If I were Raga Shah, I wouldn't worry too much about my own revenge. I'd be looking out for a certain she-devil because she's going to be wanting some revenge of her own. Now again, this is a real shame. This is the only Shanna story drawn by the tribe. 
I think it's right up there with the best Shanna depictions. You know, sexy, but also a real action hero, too. Diving, uh, diving across panels and running through them. And the look she's given, if, if this story wasn't 40 years old, I'd almost think she was physically modeled after someone like Lana Del Rey with very distinct, sharp features. Anyway, I want to wrap this episode up. You can check out previous episodes of Shanna Showcase and Reboot Review, my look at the Legion of Superheroes, on the blog, imthegun.blogspot.com. Or check them out on iTunes. Just search there for I'm the Gun Reboot Review or Shanna Showcase. There's links on the blog to Twitter and Tumblr. I'd love to talk to you more about Shanna. Not so much about Kazar. But kidding, I'll, I'll talk about him too if you want. So leave a comment on the blog or email me at imthegun at gmail.com. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next Shanna Showcase. So until then, see you on the Savannah.